Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll begin there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable and all the, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good, and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willingly to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will seek you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. May the Lord add to us this evening the blessing once more from his word. We are resuming in our time in these evenings our focus upon the church. And of course our focus here is not on the opinions of men. Our interest is to see the Lord God 
his assessment of the church. Our interest is to go to Zion's only king and head and to understand from him how the church is to be constituted. What is its character and how is she functioning? And you see, friend, of course, the world is not clamoring to hear such things. Oh, in our day and age, we live in a world where many are contemplating fiscal policy, interested intently in in foreign diplomacy, taken up with questions of local and national policies. They're interested in the politics, the politics of those kinds of institutions that pertain primarily to this life. But how few, friend, are there that are asking of Zion's only king and head? What is that role that Christ has established for that institution that he's established, not just for the good of people in this life, but for the good of immortal souls? You see, friend, that's why we're gathered this evening around the word. Our interest is to see what the Lord God has prescribed for his church. And we come then to that theme that really has prompted these studies in the first place. And that theme is the eldership, that which Christ has instituted for the good of his people. And of course, we are doing so as we look, God willing, in the weeks ahead to a potential elder election. But as we do so, friend, I want to situate our conversation and our thinking around the word of God that we have before us this evening. I want to take you just for a moment to the church who is addressed here. And what you find as you read about this church, as you read through this epistle, you'll find that you encounter a people who are persecuted, a people who are persecuted hotly, a people who are chastened by Jews, chastened because they were a people who had forsaken the Levitical system because they held to Christ. They thought Christ had fulfilled the types and the shadows of the law. And so, of course, the Jews responded and said that such who departed from the Levitical system were infidels. These were those who stood in a long line of rebels. These were those who had their forebears in the likes of Korah, those who rebelled against the rule of Moses. They were, the, they were like that wilderness generation that had forsaken the promise of God and perished in the wilderness. That's how the Christians were perceived. And so the apostle writes this epistle to them very simply to tell them plainly that to forsake the truths which they have found in Christ is a grave error. Yes, the temptation may be hot. Yes, the persecution may be severe. But the apostle shows us through a drastic change in the conversation that is far more severe to forsake Christ who is not as Moses was, a servant in the house, but a son. You know, friend, it's striking how he does this. The entirety of the epistle really is arguing the same point, just in different ways. The apostle actually says, pointedly, that if you forsake Christ after you've been given knowledge, only after you've forsaken Christ are you like the wilderness generation. Only then. Not if you forsake the temple and the Levitical systems and ceremonies. It's if you forsake Christ that you're labeled among those who died in unbelief, who perished in the wilderness. That's, that's Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. 
And the writer drives home this idea. That friends, whatever kind of things persecution may drive them to, if it drives them away from Christ, it drives them away from one who is preeminent. You see, the argument the Apostle uses to hold the church steadfast to Christ is simply to let them see the supremacy of Christ in all things. That's his apologetic. That's his argument. But as we come to our text this evening, that argument, of course, is coming to its close. The Apostle gives us, at first, what seems to be just a litany of exhortations. A litany that doesn't seem to have some kind of cohering principle or argument to it. But as you look at this text, friend, it's very clear what the Apostle is doing. If you look just at the first six verses that we read in Hebrews 13, you see how this comports with what's gone before. The the Apostle here writes to a church under persecution, and so what does he exhort them to do? In those first six verses, he exhorts them to contentment. He urges them to lay hold of those things that God has already given and to be content with the lot that providence has given them. You see here, friend, as you read throughout this text, you find that then the apostle is urged to make a simple point. As they are persecuted, as their well-being is threatened, seems to be threatened at every side, they are to look for succor, for help, not by defecting, but by looking to the one who is the Lord, their helper. Now, in verse 5, you have that that column that's very clear. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And you see then that the apostle is going to give them an example of the very thing he exhorts them to in the seventh verse. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. He urges them to think back on those whom the Lord has given to them to give them the Word of God. And he urges them to look at their lives and to see that their lives bear witness to the very exhortations that the Apostle has been giving. But you see what the Apostle is driving at at this stage. He says, first of all, you who are tempted to forsake Christ as he's preached, You who are tempted to go back to the priests and to the temple and to the sacrifices. Look at how these men remain steadfast to the end. Even under persecution, they were steadfast. And then the apostle tells us why. You see here, bookending really the idea of verse 7 is what you have in the 6th and then in the 8th verses. These were men whose lives testified to the ongoing grace of God who holds his people steadfast, who holds them even under this kind of persecution. Then the apostle makes the argument. He really summarizes everything that's gone before in verses 9 and following, where he sets before us the supremacy of Christ and the fact that Christ has fulfilled every part of the law. But as you come to our text... The 17th verse, he returns to what he introduced in the 7th. He returns to this idea of those who have rule in the church. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. First of all, friend, in the 17th verse, you have a change. In the 7th verse, the apostle looks to those who were once exercising rule in the church. Now he comes to those who are presently rulers in the church of God. 
And here's his exhortation. Obey them. In other words, friend, don't forsake them. Don't go back to the Levites, to the priests of the temple. Obey those whom Christ has appointed in the church. And that leads us to a question. What really is the essence of this exhortation? The word here is obey. Elsewhere it's translated to please or to trust. The sense there is very basic. It is just this. The apostle urges them to submit. He urges them to be persuaded even, you could say. He urges them to be swayed. But to what? You see here, friend, in a kind of implicit way, you have really the crux of ecclesiastical authority. That is rule in the church. He urges them to be swayed or to be pliable to those whom the Lord has set over them. And why would he urge it in such a way? Friend, I want you to consider how the apostle describes his own ministry. He writes, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 In Galatians 1.10, the apostle writes, For do I now persuade men or God? You see, the apostolic ministry, and really the character of ecclesiastical ministry is that. It's one of persuasion. And here the apostle exhorts them very simply to be swayed, that is to be pliable to such ministration. And so he seconds that in the very next slide with this exhortation to submit yourselves, that is, yield yourselves. When you come then to what you have what follows, you come to a description. This is the direction. The direction is to obey or to be swayed or pliable to the ministration of those who have role in the church. But then he says something about those who are already possessed of that authority. Note what he says. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Friend, he describes them, first of all, as those that have rule over you. And it's important for me to tell you that at the onset, this is not actually a title. This is far more a description. And in fact, really, as you look throughout the usage of this word, both in in biblical and also extra-testamental literature, what you'll find here is that the sense is that of leading, that of guiding, those who are guiding you, leading you. These are the ones whom the apostle says they are to be pliable to Really, in the New Testament, this word only appears twice. It describes chief men in Acts 15.22, and those who are greatest among men, Luke 22.26. And it's used three times in the text that we read, verses 7, 17, and 24 of Hebrews 13. Now, you could say, perhaps, what the Apostle is saying is, he's urging them to look at those who are in the church as though they were kings, as though they were magistrates. But as you look at how the Apostle describes these men, it's important to note how he describes what they're doing. He says, for they watch for your souls. My friend, that's not kingly magisterial authority. That's not the activity of a civil magistrate. That really describes the idea of a shepherd. Shepherds watch over their flock. And so, as you read throughout the New Testament, you'll find that those who are described here as rulers in the church of God are described as overseers. Take 1 Peter 5, 2. Flee the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. 
They watch over the flock of God. Or Acts 20.28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. That is the kind of watch that the Apostle has in mind. These who have this kind of authority in the church are those who are styled really as overseers, watchers, shepherds. And then, friend, you find that he seconds this kind of exhortation with a further description of these who are ruling in the church. He describes them as those that must give account. Now, literally, this is a word of rendering in the original But the sense is that they are making an account, rendering some kind of account, because duty obliges them to do so. And so throughout the New Testament, this kind of language is used to describe paying wages, giving a hire, or even rendering testimony, as it is in Acts 4. The sense that the Apostle is saying here is that these are ones who must render an account. It is an obligation for them to do so. And this is one of the reasons why, he says, the church is supposed to submit to those who have authority in the church. Now, friend, to whom is the account made? Of course it is made to the one who makes these men overseers in the church of God, to Zion's only king and head. But you could ask the question, what kind of accounting are we referring to? Are we talking about here the eschaton, the end of days, the final judgment? Um, And friend, some people, of course, could take it that way, in which he could say that Here the ministers are described as those who are rejoicing over those whom the Lord has saved through their ministry. And they're also standing solemnly as a testimony against those who perished in spite of the light of truth that was preached to them. But I think Owen is perhaps more correct as he writes this. He says the present account that's in view here is that which they give to Jesus Christ in the present of the work committed to them. This is a present kind of accounting that the Apostle has, but we'll take that up in just a few moments' time. As we paraphrase the text, then, what we have here is this idea. The Apostle urges the church, under persecution, threatened at every moment, not only with danger temporal, but even spiritual with this. You could say, he writes, instead of following yourselves or others, follow those whom Christ has given as guides who long to make a joyful report to Christ of your progress, and whose grief at your lapse is a burden to them and a token of your present and eternal harm. What we see here then, friend, in this text, is that the men that are in view here implicitly are men who are lawful rulers in the church. He doesn't urge them to obey usurpers. He doesn't urge them to obey men who have taken the office upon themselves. He's really thinking here of lawful elders, men who are possessed both of qualifications and who have been recognized solemnly by the church. But also we're supposed to recognize here that what we have is not merely one man's opinion about the right order of the church. What we have here is the Spirit of God telling us something about the right inspired order, both for those who would be elders in the church and those who would be under their ministries. And what is that? Well, that brings us to our theme this evening, which is simply this. Elders are authorized by Christ to guide souls to Christ. Elders are authorized by Christ to guide souls to Christ. And briefly, I want us to take up this theme under three headings. I want us to consider the authority, the accounting, and even the affections. 
of these ones whom the Apostle describes in Hebrews 13. And so first of all, the authority. As we said before, friend, what you have in this text is the Apostle dealing with men who are lawful elders. Not men who are tyrants, not men who have usurped some kind of position in the church. And so, of course, as we look throughout the scriptures, we're supposed to understand that the scriptures describe for us what kinds of men these are. In other words, what you have even in Hebrews 5 gives us some kind of analogy. No man taketh this honor unto himself, speaking of the old covenant offices, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The apostles making an analogy. If you are to serve in the church of God, either under the old or new covenant administration, you are to be called of God. It is God who makes men what they are. And so the apostle writes in Acts 20.28 to the elders in Ephesus, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. It's the Holy Ghost who makes men what they are in the church. But even as they are appointed by God, you can't forget either that the New Testament shows us that they are also men recognized by the church. Note this. When Paul writes to Timothy, he writes this. He says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now it's striking, isn't it? But what else is striking is what the Apostle says in his second epistle to Timothy. Referring to that same gift, he says, stir up the gift of God. He says the gift here is of God, but then he writes this, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands, in which the apostle describes himself as one of the presbytery laying hands upon Timothy. The idea is, is that the gift of God is really the foundation, but the church here solemnly recognizes Timothy to be what he is in the church. What you have then, friend, unsurprisingly in the New Testament, is accounts of that very thing. The Lord God equipping men to the task, and the church recognizing them in that, fun- in that function. Take Acts 14.23. Thus when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commend- commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And then Paul writes to Titus to the same effect. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, that is, things that are lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. In other words, friend, we're supposed to understand as we come to Hebrews 13, 17, those who are in view are those who are called of God and recognized by the church. But the point that I would drive home, friend, this evening is just this, that these are men who are called of God. These are men who are called of God, which means their authority is under Christ. True elders are to be submitted to in the Lord and for his sake. True elders are to be submitted to the Lord and for his sake, and not for their own. I think perhaps this is where many confuse ecclesiastical authority with other kinds. But friend, note how the Apostle Peter describes the kind of submission elders are to be, are, are to be seeking. The elders which are among you, I exhort, he writes, who am also an elder. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, but note this, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear. He shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's 1 Peter 5, the first four verses. You see what Peter is saying. 
You are not, to, you are not friend here, to coerce any in the church to submit. The urge here is just this. To take oversight in the church, not by constraint, but willingly. And not being as lords over God's heritage. Even the apostle, as we said before, writes similarly. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, friend, what you have here is the New Testament account of church authority is ministerial, not magisterial. This is where we separate from Rome drastically. In Rome, those who are rulers in the church are magistrates, really. They function largely as those who not only really prescribe for the church her ordinances, but even her dogma. Not so the New Testament account of church authority. No, you see, church authority is always ministerial, is always and only derived from Christ, and is only binding insofar as it is the law of Christ that is given. Jerome puts it this way. He says, magistrates command the unwilling, elders only the willing. Gouge, I think, more helpfully puts it this way. He says, there is a great difference between a civil magistrate and a minister of the word. God gives the civil magistrate authority to command obedience in his own name and to be performed to himself. But the authority of a minister so resteth in Christ, as in Christ's name only, he may require obedience to be performed to Christ himself. And so, friend, any unbiblical command is immediately unbinding. And any unlawful elder is not, is not to be received as such. Thus, in lawful commands, friend, the man here is to be obeyed and received only for Christ's sake. The command that is given must be weighed by the word of God. And the man himself, the man himself is under the same rule that he would prescribe. Owen, I think, again, very helpfully puts it this way. Their word, writing about this text, is to be obeyed and their rule submitted to, not only because they are true and right materially, but because they are theirs and conveyed from them by divine institution. Our regard is to be had under their authority and office power in what they teach and do. The sense is so very basic. The apostle here is not exhorting them to a kind of implicit faith, where men follow the elders of the church blindly. That's not the authority that's been communicated to elders in the church. Their authority is purely ministerial and purely derived from Christ. This and no further. But the point that we can't miss either is that the exhortation is from the Spirit of God here. Obey them. Obey them. And you see why that would be. Christ writes, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Speaking of officers in the church. Later in Luke 10, he writes this, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And so, friend, truly called men in the lawful execution of their office are only to be obeyed for Christ's sake. That's the only way we can read this exhortation. If they deviate from Christ, friend, they're not with authority. They do not possess a right to bind. Because they are not lords over God's heritage. Only the Lord Christ is Lord of the conscience. And so what you find here, friend, in this text is this exhortation to obey those who are in the church. It's perhaps not the best analogy, but it's one that I think is workable. 
like one would obey a doctor. You see, the doctor makes a command, and that command must be issued through persuasion. Then that command, of course, is received also because the man who stands in that role is respected in that role. They understand that he is equipped to the task of being a physician. Spiritual physicians are very similar in that regard. But friend, the application for us is very simple. We are to be those who submit to faithful eldership as helps appointed by Christ for your good and for his glory. They watch for your souls. They watch for your souls, says the apostle. That's why they're possessed of the office that they are. It is for your good. Now, beloved, as we come to our second heading, just briefly, I'll say to you at the onset, that as the Apostle describes here what the function of the office is, many of our points are more applicable to those who are already in the office. But it's needful for not only elders to hear this, but also for the congregation. As we look to elder elections, we recognize, of course, elders will be drawn from among the church. And so as we look at how the Apostle describes elders in the Church of Christ, it's important for us to recognize that here, we're supposed to recognize that here it's Christ who tells us what an elder ought to be. What is the elder? He's one who is called to give an account. Again, as that is in the original, it's to render a word. It's an obligation. He has no choice. But in what sense is he to render this account? As we said before, friend, if the eschaton, if the end is in view, it is only so remotely. Really what's in view here is something that's far more present. It's the very thing that you have here given by the Apostle in Acts 20, 26. I take you to record this day, he writes, that I am pure from the blood of all men. Why? For, he writes, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. The idea there is that the Apostle is giving an account, assessing his ministry, setting before the people of God and before God that he is sought to be faithful in all things. And then note how he gives an account of the church throughout his epistles. Take what he writes of the Ephesians. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The account that he makes there of the church of Ephesus is very simple. He sees their reason for thanksgiving. He sees the grace of God and their profiting under his ministry as a matter of things. And he carries that to the Lord. Take what he says of the church in Philippi. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel. This is his assessment of the church. From the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He assesses in conclusion that ye are all partakers of my grace. But note the context. As he makes these assessments of the church, he's doing so by carrying them back to the Lord in prayer. This is the kind of rendering an account that the apostle has in view. Those who are spiritual watchmen on Zion's walls are often going back to God with assessments of the church. Often going back to the one who is the chief shepherd, analyzing the flock that only for a time they've been made, as it were, under shepherds in. And you see, friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss that the apostle is urging us here 
to see that this is part and parcel of the apostolic calling. For those of us who are in this office, for those of us who may be, friend, note how he describes these men. These are men who are constantly going to God on behalf of the church. These are men who are rendering an account to God frequently on behalf of the church. Elders are not businessmen. Not in the sense that they are simply trying to keep the institution running. In fact, elders are not men who go first of all to men. But true elders in the church are men who give themselves over to the Lord and for the good of God's people often go to God on behalf of the flock. That's how these men are described in the text. The sense here, friend, is that it is obligatory that elders are such men. This is the flock that is purchased by Christ's own blood. This is that body which has been espoused to Christ, whom elders should long to say that with Paul, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. If this is God's inheritance and God's flock, and these men are lawfully called and spiritually equipped, they will often make account to God on behalf of that church. But thirdly and finally, we come to the affections here described. I want you to notice here that the Apostle describes two kinds, joy and grief. And we'll be brief here. He says, really, that these are men who, as they make their accounts to the Lord, do so with the heart. They do so lively, not coldly. There is a sense in which they may go to God in grief over the matters of the church. And you see the Apostle Paul doing that in 1 Corinthians, don't you? But you also see, as we even read from Ephesus and Philippi, the apostle doing the same thing, but with thanksgiving. But the point is, friend, that he is still telling us something about the elder. True elders are men who are affected by the spiritual condition of the church. I mean, note how the apostle writes. Besides those things that are without, he says, those burdens that come to him are those which cometh upon me daily, namely the care of all the churches. The apostle feels these things. He loves the people of God, and these things he does not deal with coldly. They press upon him, even more than all of the afflictions that he's described beforehand. Note this, as he's talking about his desire to hear about the church of Corinth through Titus. Note how he describes himself. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. Titus, who was to give him word about how the Corinthian believers were doing. He says here, I had no rest. I was restless until I heard word from you. Then again, he writes this, Nevertheless, God that comforted those who were cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus will now bring a word of the Corinthians' repentance. He says, now I'm comforted. The apostle doesn't receive either coldly. He doesn't receive coldly the fact that he doesn't know what's going on in Corinth. And he doesn't receive coldly the joyous news that he receives from Titus. In other words, he writes, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we were for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. Friend, what you have here in the apostles is the very same thing the apostle is ascribing to elders in the church. These are men whose hearts are so knit to the body of Christ that they cannot look to the the flock coldly, one way or the other. 
So writes John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And friend, this brings us to our conclusion this evening. Those who are called here to be obeyed, those who are called here to be men submitted unto, they're called by Christ to be in this position. And Christ calls the church to recognize and to submit to them in this position. But what are these kinds of men? Oh friend, these are men who go first to God before they go to men. These are men who recognize themselves accountable to God, not to men. And then these are men, friend, who are deeply affected spiritually for God's people. It's not enough merely to have the cognitive ability or to have that providential opportunity to stand in such a role. But one must have the spiritual capacity to be an elder in the way that's described for us in Hebrews 13, 17. He must be spiritually capable of feeling the burden of the church. And also rejoicing in her growth. He cannot be cold and callous. And friend, as we close here, the exhortation for us is so very basic, isn't it? For elders, this is the men whom we must be. This is the men whom we must be. There is nothing else in the word of God that is given to us. There is no right for us to hold authority unless we are such men. Because ours is only ministerial. But for the congregation, friend, we're supposed to see here in this text that the apostle is not urging some kind of draconian submission. He's urging here for the sake of these souls that are persecuted and tempted to stray for their own good to submit to such men in the Lord. But also, friend, as we come ourselves as a congregation, the exhortation is this. We are to pray for two things. We are to pray, first of all, for the humility to submit. If we have such men as this, friend, they will be willing to say hard things to us. We need to pray that the Lord would grant us grace to submit right. But of course we also need to be praying that we would have such men. Men who are already in office and God willing men who will come into this office as well. Even among us. Men who are first and foremost. God's men. Amen.